The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Ah, warm welcome to Scorebox this Tuesday morning. Let's give you some headlines. Oracle taking on Microsoft. CNBC sources learn the software giant is making a bid for TikTok's North American assets, working with venture capital groups to go up against Microsoft's offer. BHP misses a full year forecast but keeps its dividend as the mining titan warns that most of the world's major economies will keep contracting through 2020. But the CEO does tell CNBC that iron ore prices will recover. I wouldn't want to predict that prices will stay at current levels over, over that period in, of time. In fact, I think as, as more supply comes to market, we should, could see a little bit of retracement in price. But yes, underlying market to, uh, fundamentals are strong. Democrats and some Republicans taking aim at the President, Mr. Trump, in the all-virtual Democratic National Convention, which gets underway with a headline speech from the former First Lady, Michelle Obama. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. And the leader of Belarus reportedly offers to hold a fresh leadership referendum if protesters back down in the first sign of concession since the opposition leader fled the country following the general election. Well, welcome to the show. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, isn't there? Political upheaval once again in Europe as well. Concern on a trans-Pacific basis uh, about the relationship between China and the US, US tech and Chinese tech and the ramifications more broadly for that as well. Uh, but one constant is there and that is that the Nasdaq is back up again uh, for I believe it's its 33rd record level uh, of the year. 1% higher in session, uh, outperforming uh, the Dow, which was down 0.3 of 1%, and the S&P, which was scratched rambling and flirting with intraday record levels on its own as well. The Dow, incidentally, is still 5.8% away from its record high. Uh, the S&P closed 0.3 of 1% away. And very interesting, actually. We're in the, can I say this, the dog end of the uh, earnings season. I'm sure if you've still got a report, you don't feel you're in the dog end. But you know what I'm saying? We've had 457 companies reported uh, out of 500 in the S&P. And I was just looking at this stat uh, on Reuters copy. Uh, and guess what the beats were? 81.4%. Now, historically, that is uh, around about 13 percentage points higher than the 65 to 70%, which is the average beat normally we see on a quarterly basis. But it just shows you the worth of a beat versus a miss, really. And it's not worth a lot, is it? Because the lowered expectations have been lowered so much that virtually every company, it seems, or at least four out of five, are beating. So, you know, really, does it matter, given the fact that we know that there's enormous challenges, massive downtick in sales figures, uh, indeed, with the likes of BHP, which we'll be covering in this show showing the CEO interview there, and Pandora, which we'll be speaking to uh, in a short while as well. The fact is, when you lower so far, uh, really not that hard to beat, perhaps in some ways as well. But let's have a look at some of the NASDAQ gainers as well. Incidentally, I should say, uh, Boeing was one of the big decliners uh, dragging the Dow down. Of course, we have had industrials who have been better performers, haven't they, as of late. Tesla. Tesla up 11.2% was uh, certainly the standout for the Nasdaq, creating uh, a very positive ripple there. 38 points of the Dow rally uh, was down to that one stock alone. Uh, NVIDIA, 6.7% higher again. Uh, Amazon looking pretty sprightly, 1.1% to the good. And PayPal holdings, 2.5% uh, higher. 
Microsoft 0.7 of a percent up. So let's take a look at the U.S. futures uh, and where they're currently trading as well. Uh, again, really flattish start to the trading. We've still got um, some earnings still to come. Uh, home improvement retailers uh, seen getting a bit of a boost from, of course, the trend to work from home as well. People building what their home offices or just having nothing else to do with their lives uh, rather than do home improvement as well. Apart from in my house. Right, let's go on. Uh, sources have told CNBC that enterprise software giant Oracle has entered the race to buy TikTok's US operations, amongst other assets. A person familiar with the matter told CNBC Oracle was working with venture capitalists to challenge Microsoft's offer. This after the US president, Mr. Trump, gave TikTok's owner ByteDance 90 days to divest assets used to support the popular social media app in the United States. The White House trade advisor is Peter Navarro, of course, and he told CNBC the decision is rooted in ongoing security concerns. The rationale for the policy of banning TikTok, WeChat, perhaps others, is simply that these are tools where they collect information that goes back straight to the Chinese mainland to servers there, and that information can be used by the Chinese Communist Party or the People's Liberation Army. There is a reason, Scott, why the Defense Department banned TikTok. And so if you look at the, the panoply of dangers from these social media apps, it's surveil, track and monitor people. So let's get to Sam, who joins us more, uh, not only uh, talking about TikTok, but also a little bit later on about Huawei as well. So look, these tensions build up as well. Uh, and yet, uh, obviously, a bidding race now starting for these ByteDance assets in North America. Good morning to you, Sam. Good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, well, I mean, this latest order is actually said to have come after government-led panel recommendations, actually led by Treasury, which actually investigates foreign acquisitions of potential security risks. So I suppose uh, this does give Trump a little bit of assurance here, and it certainly does add pressure on ByteDance to sell its US operations of TikTok. And so maybe perhaps, you know, having multiple companies in the race might do something now for that uh, that price tag. But just Certainly Oracle uh, is an interesting one because, of course, it, it doesn't have any sort of consumer-facing uh, uh, products like social media or a video business. But still, uh, sources who spoke to our colleagues stateside have said, as you said, that uh, uh, there is um, venture capitalists uh, that are now looking into uh, TikTok and that talks have accelerated uh, in recent days. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that one. But it does also come, as you suggested, that uh, as the U.S. is now tightening uh, the screws on Huawei, way by actually further limiting its access to semiconductor chips. Of course, we do have to remember back in May, the Commerce Department did impose restrictions on Huawei to make it harder for it to actually obtain semiconductors made with US software and technology without a special license. But now uh, the Commerce Department is going one step further and actually has uh, added 38 affiliates of the company to this government trade blacklist, um, saying that they tried to evade these earlier uh, U.S. restrictions by working with third parties uh, to actually harness this U.S. technology still. So this uh, is said to be aimed at trying to prevent Huawei from trying to circumvent and, and get around some of those earlier U.S. export controls uh, and also trying to close loopholes, uh, any type of loopholes that Huawei could potentially uh, use here. Of course, the concern is and has been all along that you know Huawei equipment could be used 
uh, to spy on Americans by Beijing, something that the company has repeatedly denied. And so uh, we are, of course, now waiting for an official response from Beijing. But I mean, you know, if Chinese state media uh, is anything to go by, it has suggested that this uh, latest move uh, could certainly warrant concrete retaliation from China. Now, you know, as far as what Beijing may do is unclear at this stage. I mean, certainly as up to this point, it's tit for tat measures have been fairly measured, but there has been some suggestion that the government uh, was already ready to retaliate uh, back in May uh, by putting restrictions perhaps on US companies like Apple uh, and Qualcomm, adding that this new move uh, certainly does give it even uh, more of a reason or more urgency to do so now. Now, US pressure has already uh, said to have had big impact uh, on Huawei. The company uh, has reportedly started running out of processor trip chips uh, and is said to uh, be, you know, thinking about stop making it its own advanced chips. So, you know, certainly this could deal a, a big blow to Huawei and could be uh, very significant, uh, which, uh, you know, certainly Beijing wouldn't like, given that, you know, Huawei has been sort of uh, hailed a, a national champion in China. And so this could draw uh, certainly a very a strong response from Beijing. Steve, back to Yes, Sam. I, I spent my life, as you know, in a state of perpetual confusion as well. So just, just now, as, as Navarro and the US administration just clarified everything for me in the last couple of days or so, Huawei is a national security concern then, is it? Rather than just being a bargaining chip to get, um, to get more further uh, concessions in, in trans-Pacific trade. It is a security threat rather than a bargaining chip. Can we, can we, can we uh, categorically say that now? Well, no, we can't because, I mean, you know, certainly there has been no evidence of this. I mean, the U.S. does say that uh, Huawei's equipment uh, may be used by Beijing to, to spy on Americans, uh, but Beijing has repeatedly, uh, you know, wanted evidence of this. So certainly uh, the assumption is that it is being used as a bargaining chip and it has certainly been caught in the crosshairs of this broader trade dispute between the two sides. I think, you know, with TikTok, as we heard at Navarro there, I think the, the the, it's, the debate is a little bit more nuanced uh, than this. Uh, you know, certainly uh, there is no smoking gun, so to speak, when it comes to these national security threats. But what this concern certainly is, um, is that uh, the, the TikTok's users' data could potentially end up uh, in the hands of the Chinese government. So as I said, uh, it is a little bit more nuanced than that. But certainly we have not seen any evidence uh, of uh, these threats, uh, which the Americans accuse these uh, apps and companies of, Steve. Yeah, I've no doubt you're right about the nuance as well. But it just seems from one day to the next, it changes depending on uh, who you listen to. Thank you very much indeed for that indeed. Right, let's uh, move on. Um, do you see the Indonesian trade stats just now? You wouldn't have seen them because they just hit the wires. Uh, the import figures, Indonesia, down 30%. One, you know, one of the huge big economies of Asia, down 30%. Yesterday, of course, we had the Japanese figures uh, down over 20% as well. Another set of big figures as well. But today, well, despite that, Japanese manufacturer sentiment has improved in August to its highest level since the pandemic started. But the overall mood remains firmly negative. That's according to the latest Tankan survey. On Monday, Japan officially fell to its deepest recession on record with the pandemic hitting demand and devastating exports. Let's take a look at some of the, uh, the key Japanese indices. You're really not moving on the back of the data, are they? And either way, uh, three-tenths of a percent lower for the Nikkei, which is at 23,029. The dollar-yen pair, uh, 105.62, down four-tenths of a percent. 
Coming up on this show, mining giant BHP confirms plan to divest its thermal coal divisions as full-year profit misses forecast. We're going to hear from the CEO, Mike Henry, after the break. Oh, and the podcast. Oh, it's a winner. Uh, today's one, all the market-moving stories. Um, check it out. Squawk Box podcast hosted on all the major podcast providers and, of course, CNBC.com. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. this recession thing and you know the, the COVID-19 what do you think home builder sentiment has done yeah it's hit a record level uh, consumers apparently ditching urban areas for larger suburban homes they can have mine if they want uh, that's according to the latest national association of home builders and the Wells Fargo housing market index uh, but why housing remains a bright spot in the pandemic hit economy don't forget of course mortgages are record lows uh, the survey also found that an increasing number of homeowners are falling behind on those aforementioned mortgages well, the boost in home builder sentiment has also sent home improvement stocks to record levels. It comes as Home Depot and Lowe's are set to report their latest earnings this week. Uh, CNBC's Frank Holland followed this report. Home improvement retailers Home Depot and Lowe's trading at all-time highs today and both doubling from their 52-week lows back in March ahead of their earnings this week, where pandemic fuel demand has revenue and profit estimates increasing double digits year over year during the first full quarter of COVID-19. Retail sales, they've steadily improved in recent months as Americans nest and make their homes and backyards just more comfortable. Those home improvement retail sales increasing double digits in each of the past three months. A key metric to watch during earnings will be online sales. Home, both Home Depot and Lowe's, they reported 80% growth in online sales last quarter. Analysts I spoke with say they expect that level to remain about the same, if not higher, this quarter. Back over to you. Uh, BHP has reported a $9.1 billion full-year profit. That did miss expectations, though. It's the world's largest listed miner and warned that most major global economies will continue to contract this year, with the exception of China. Uh, Will joins us now. Will, I caught the tail end of your interview uh, earlier on with uh, the CEO as well. Very interesting as well, because, I mean, there is still vast demand out there for thermal coal. There is still vast amount of growth in that uh, in, in areas such as uh, China as well. So very interesting that they've taken taken uh, a very Western approach, perhaps in many ways, and decided to divest. It, it is interesting that you do mention that, Steve, because although there is that demand for thermal coal, if you've noticed what China has been doing for the past couple of months or so at least, they really have been pushing their domestic thermal coal industry. So exports, especially from Australia, when it does come to coal, have basically tapered off over the last couple of months as well. But really, when it does come to BHP, it does come to the CEO, Mike Henry, even when I spoke to him back in February, ESG has been one of his primary and core focuses for the miner, trying to really future-proof it moving forward into the future. So even if you look at the numbers, for example, you, you saw that underlying impact coming in at $9.1 billion, relatively strong. It missed expectations. That's fair enough. But in terms of the, the divestiture 
of the assets. This has really been something that they've wanted to do for quite some time. And this is a little bit of what he had to say in terms of perhaps justifying the, the sale and the decision that he made right at this moment. Listen in. We are attending to the portfolio. So I've announced today that we intend to divest four coal operations, and that's our, our stake in BMC, which is two mines, New South Wales Energy Coal, and a non-operated stake in Sarahon. And this is all about focusing our coal portfolio on higher quality hard coking coals that we think are exposed to upside in the decarbonizing world. And for these other assets, which are great assets, generate strong cash flow, but they're going to realize their full potential under a different uh, ownership structure, in part because they won't compete for capital in BHP, where we've got other strong uh, options uh, going forward. Your question about whether there's, there's more to come, this is really the focus. I think that we've, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten the, we're, we're sharpening up the coal portfolio. We've made the announcement that, that we have to make today around BMC, New South Wales and, uh, and Sarahon. And I, w I would want uh, us not to lose sight as well of the fact that in the past year, we've secured more options and advanced options in future facing commodities. So tending to the current portfolio, building options for the future. And it is an interesting way that they're doing. They're actually going to pair up a little bit of their Met Coal division as well to make it more appealing to investors. Because as you know, over the past two years or so, coal's basically become practically uninvestable. Just take a look at some of the other Australian coal miners. But in terms of their outlook moving forward, it really is iron ore that is going to be absolutely critical as it always has been for BHP. They had a stellar result when it did come to their iron ore division, over $14 billion in EBITDA for the division. Their margin of 70% was the best that they actually have seen since 2012. And basically, what we were trying to find out when we were speaking to him is how he sees the outlook moving forward. That China demand story is absolutely critical. We're seeing right now the iron ore prices topping out at around about 121 a tonne. And here's what he had to say about the, perhaps his guidance moving forward in terms of how that division and how the iron ore outlook in general is going to be performing. Here's what he had to say. I would ask that everybody look at the uh, very strong set of operational results that we had for the in, in, during the course of the, of the past year, where we've continued to become more productive. We delivered uh, reliably over the course of the year. We're going to uh, produce uh, every bit as reliably as we can in the period ahead. But of course, given uh, uh, COVID, things remain uncertain. So we've, we've exercised our best judgment today in terms of the guidance that we've provided. But you know, if, if as we move through through the course of the year, things end up uh, better than we than than expected, we'll speak to the market about it at that point in time. Now, Steve, what he did say though is they're actually going to have an ESG update in September where they're going to announce a whole swathe of new measures as well in order to really drive that aspect of their business. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because they did make their Escondida and Spence mines over there in Chile renewable. I actually asked him about whether or not he's looking at doing a similar thing, particularly in the Pilbara, where a lot of their operations do reside. And this is something that we are going to be closely watching because a lot of investors, as you know, Steve, in terms of the mandates when it comes to ESG moving forward, this is going to be a big driver for any kind of international global miner that is operating, maintaining that investability when it does come to their operations. Yeah, I'm always um, confused or concerned whether investors really want their ESG to be top notch from the companies they invest in or they want better returns as well. So the dividend was very important down from last year, but still uh, in line with what they'd previously said, Will. Yeah, pretty much. And, and it was an incredibly strong result. Like it is very difficult. If you're looking at $9 billion of profit for the full year 20, it's strong. If you're looking at the dividend aspect, yes, it was 55 cents. That was a little bit under expectations, but they're still delivering about $2.8 billion back to their shareholders at a 67% payout ratio. So if you're invested in BHP, where else are you going to find that similar kind of yield? Even 
when you're just looking at other mining operations. In this kind of environment with the COVID-19 impact, you want that certainty when you're looking at that investability, when you're looking at a company. So it, it does seem that it's, it's going to be tailwinds moving forward as opposed to headwinds when you look at the likes of BHP, the likes of Rio, the likes of Fortescue, our biggest miners here in Australia. Just, just tell me, Will, just more generally, of course, everyone always looks at Australia as a very important market um, related to the Chinese economy as well. But is China obviously now, because of the political situation developing between a lot of the Western powers and China as well, is Australia doing anything to basically lessen the importance of its China exposure? Not, not really. And it was interesting that you do mention the Australia-China relationship. I don't know if you saw that we actually had yet another furthering of those impacted trade tensions between Australia and China. You basically had China's MOFCOM earlier today saying they're going to be launching an anti-dumping investigation into the Australian wine industry. And if you look at Treasury Wines, which is one of the world's biggest winemakers here in Australia, they absolutely got smashed in the trading session today. They were off by 20% at one point. And it, and it is interesting because you have this dynamic where a lot of these Australian companies, they're really trying, or the, the business leaders are really trying to push for an easing of this relationship, or tensions in the relationship between Australia and China. But then on the, the political end of the spectrum, they're really trying to push their own so, our own sovereignty here in Australia and not necessarily co-align as much with the, the, the business aspect. So it's, it's an incredibly interesting dynamic, but in, in terms of just the business relationship, Australia and China, those relationships are absolutely critical for all of our businesses, not just in the mining sector. I hadn't seen the story, but I've been looking at it now. What an amazing story. I didn't realise that China was so important for the uh, Australian wine market. $1.25 billion, more than a third of the whole export market. That is a great story. Thank you very much indeed for bringing it to us, Will. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Young people in their 20s, 30s and 40s are increasingly driving pandemic um, concerns and uh, and concerns about proliferation, uh, raising fears over a a spillover to the elderly. That's according to a regional director of the World Health Organization, Takeshi Kasai, uh, who added that the virus will, quote, remain with us for the foreseeable future. This is global cases near 22 million. The European Center for Disease Prevention and Control raised an alarm over the rate of infections in 19 countries over on the continent over the past two weeks. However, new US cases appear to have dropped for a fourth week in a row, despite spikes in some states. A more infectious strain of coronavirus is being increasingly found in Europe, North America and Asia. But according to one study, this strain is believed to be less deadly. So Juliana joins us now. Uh, Okay, talk me through this, Juliana. Um, More infectious, but less deadly. Well, those are two of the potential features of this mutation. There's been mounting focus on what's called the D614G mutation in recent days. Now, we know that viruses always mutate. And this particular variant of the virus has become very common in the United States and Europe, but it's now shown up in Malaysia and the Philippines, which suggests it's been moving around. And as you, you pointed out, one of the potential features of this strain is infectiousness. Some virologists think it's more infectious than other variants. And that's potentially part of why it's become the predominant strain in the West and now has moved over to Southeast Asia. Most viruses tend to become less virulent as they mutate. It's in the virus's interest, as you can imagine, to keep people alive because that's where the virus, that's how the virus lives and thrives. Now, the second feature, the, the fact that this strain could potentially be less lethal is also quite important. Evidence suggests that the increasing prevalence of this mutation has co- coincided with a drop in the fatality rate, suggesting that it may be less lethal. Now, Steve, you 
pointed out a story uh, from the WHO pointing out that the majority of cases now are in younger people. So this could also play a role. Uh, WHO has said there's no evidence that this mutation has led to more severe disease. So everything is pointing in that direction. Still, though, too early to say with certainty whether this mutation is, in fact, more infectious and less lethal. But that's what some of the mounting evidence suggests. And just lastly, in terms of vaccine development, it's unlikely that this mutation will affect vaccine development. The variant is still very similar to the original strain of COVID-19. It hasn't changed in big enough areas in terms of our immune system and how it would recognize the virus and recognize the vaccine. So it shouldn't affect vaccine development, but this is certainly something that we have been looking out for. And now we're getting a little bit more color on how this virus is mutating. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.